Alright, greetings friends. My name is Weston Nakamura from Blockworks Macro in Tokyo. It is after Asian markets close. Welcome to the Market Depth Podcast, bringing you global market commentary and analysis from the Asia-Pacific trading session so that you know what happened overnight. Alright friends, we need to talk about China. Now, as you guys know, usually what I try to do is, in these episodes, I try to address different regions um, within Asia, markets, asset classes, various developments, and try to package it into a single episode. And yes, U.S. yields have been surging alongside JGB yields, particularly following a, a horrendous 20-year JGB auction last week. Yes, dollar-yen is creeping ever higher into the intervention levels. Yes, all of those things, all of those things are very important, critically important, and they all deserve commentary. But... We need to devote this entire episode to China. Not to put aside the other matters, but simply for the sake of time and amount of content that needs to be covered. Because the news flow of China over the last week, week and a half, has been a nonstop fire hose. Now, last week I did address China, but simply via pure green and red blinking tickers, you know, I presented to why you or anyone. Might ha who might have an interest in the directional behavior of the NASDAQ 100 index, particularly to the downside, needs to be very carefully following China more than anything else in the U.S. or otherwise, specifically the yuan price action, which weakens and drives NDX to the downside in the immediate in tandem. Um, and by the way, that had indeed been the case leading up to that episode and has remained the case thereafter. But I didn't get into any particular details and developments outside of the yuan because it's just it was just nearly impossible to do so production-wise, okay? It has been like nearly impossible to make this China update episode, again, because of just the sheer volume of developments that have been occurring over the past week in so many like different fronts. Every single day there would be several huge things that would just drop, each of which would be worthy of its own episode. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give a kind of almost a rapid fire series of mini summaries in chronological timeline of events and all, all the market developments um, of what I feel are the most notable, particularly over the course of last week, which I'm going to call turmoil week, China turmoil week, catch you up on what's going on and what's been moving global risk markets. And then I'll provide some of my personal takeaways and commentary throughout, but mostly I'll do that at the end, okay? So, before I go through this China term week, okay, let me just give you the setup leading into turmoil week as it relates to two particular entities. Number one is Country Garden Holdings, and number two is Zhongji Enterprise Group. Okay, so first on Country Garden Holdings. Country Garden Holdings is one of the largest property developers in China, or was at one point. It is publicly listed, and it trades in Hong Kong as a Hang Seng Index component. It is not state-owned. In fact, the chair of the company is a 41-year-old woman who became China's richest female at the age of 25 years old when Country Garden went public. And then she also lost the most amount of personal net worth and fortune, Going from some 30 billion USD in 2021 to now currently like 5 billion or maybe even less. Now, Country Garden is immense of a company. It has four times more projects than that of Levergrande. Um, and it was also kind of seen as relatively safe among the Chinese property developers. Not that that is a high hurdle by any means. But 2024 uh, bonds that were maturing in 2024 for Country Garden, they were trading at... 80, 85 cents on the dollar as recently as mid-June of this year, okay? However, the week prior to China turmoil week, which is last week, Country Garden failed to make $22 million in coupon payments on two of its bonds that were due on August 7th, which, you know, not that I'm a bankruptcy lawyer, but in my book, that's a default. But given that there's a 30-day grace period, in which, you know, they could extend the payment deadline before officially being in default. I suppose that it's just currently, quote, on the brink of default, but not officially default quite yet. Nonetheless, about, what, 10 trading days ago or so, they failed to make these two coupon payments. Stock drops 15% and, like, on the day, right? And it just basically closes at $1.03 per share. 
So three cents or four cents away from being a penny stock. And that penny stock status was reached two days later, that Friday, when Country Garden had reported a net loss of 55 billion yuan for the first half of 2023. That is against a net profit of 2 billion in the previous year. Now, this also made Country Garden Holdings now the second smallest weighting in the Hang Seng Index and at risk of being delisted, which in a week's time, it would find itself to be booted out of the Hang Seng Index. Now, meanwhile, in the midst of struggling to stay alive, Country Garden's bonds maturing in January that I was just talking about, they're now trading at $0.08 on the dollar. And following a ratings cut by Moody's, Country Garden announces that starting that following Monday, last Monday, the start of China Terminal Week, 11 of its onshore bonds will be suspended for trading just to kick off China Turmoil Week, all right? And although property sector woes in China is obviously nothing new, Country Garden going down was and is currently still a major, major hit to sentiment. And this is still very much an ongoing matter, okay? Not just a hit to, like, the property sector sentiment, but broader market sentiment. Sentiment about policy rescue, or lack thereof, as well as just broader, even economic sentiment, all right? But certainly market sentiment as well. If you just look at this long-term chart of Country Garden stock price, as well as dollar-yuan inverse, okay? And just look at, like, not just that they correlate, but look how they correlate in price action, specifically when they fall. Just how sharp, fast, and far they fall. Gathering steam to the downside, okay? Price behavior like that is reflective of complacency, denial, hope, or whatever, but that suddenly turns into a collective panic in unison. Price action begetting price action. Um, Same goes for its bonds. They can go down, but when they really fall, they fall sharp, fast, and far. So, those with direct exposure to country garden bonds include BlackRock, HSBC, Allianz with at least $300 million, um, Fidelity, UBS, and JP Morgan with at least $100 million, and Apollo and Deutsche, Deutsche Bank with $70 million. All right. So who cares, right? Like, this is a drop in the bucket for these investors and their massive portfolio of global assets. Well, it's not so much about who specifically has direct credit exposure to like what specific notional amount. It's not so much about that as it is a matter of what does this do to overall market sentiment this is also what moody's statement said when they downgraded country garden the second time this month they were talking about how this is going to hit market sentiment broader market sentiment okay so that's one of two major blow-ups heading into china terminal week and again it's not just country garden holding specifically it's the broader property sector but country garden matters the most The second major blow-up heading into China Terminal Week is the investment trust industry as a whole, also known as China's shadow banking industry, but specifically Zhongrong Trust. Now, Zhongrong Trust is a subsidiary of Zhongji Enterprise Group, which is a Beijing-based conglomerate in asset management with over like 1 trillion yuan in in AUM. Um, It's about 140 billion USD in AUM, and they're invested in various kind of products and as classes spanning trust companies, private equity, wealth management, and yes, real estate and property. And in a way, you can think of them as the Blackstone of China, even though there already is a Blackstone in China, if not a Blackstone of China. But again, what is Zhangji at the end of the day? It's a Chinese shadow bank and part of this so-called, you know, $3 trillion shadow banking industry in China lurking around out there. And as you can see, amongst the trust firms, Zhongrong is at the kind of at the bottom end of these top 10 in AUM. All right. But these shadow banks and shadow bank products are, as the name suggests, not actually banks. Okay. But rather, they're just kind of they're vehicles that pay out around. 7% yields, sometimes more, um, to their investor clients, who can be corporates as well as many upper middle class Chinese individuals. So 
the week heading into Turmoil Week, which was the same week that all that was happening with Country Garden that I just went over, Zhongrong International Trust had missed payments on maturing wealth products, according to clients of the firm who said they never received the payments. And then this had set off panic on social media of, you know, liquidity crunch. And later it turned into protests, physical protests at their um, office headquarters by their investors as fears of contagion spreading, you know, throughout the the broader $2.9 trillion investment industry start to manifest. Now, let me be very frank about this particular enterprise, Zhongji and Zhongrong Trust. These are straight up like Ponzi schemes, okay? You know how they were able to pay a 7% yield by, one, taking far greater credit risk, right? And two, paying off maturing products with new client inflows. Now, I am not necessarily saying that it was a Ponzi scheme in like a Madoff sense in which like this cash flow model sort of was like hidden and lied about, though I'm also not saying that that wasn't the case either. I just don't know, okay? All I'm saying is that transparent or otherwise, hidden or otherwise, this was like the, the model that hinged upon new inflows to pay out the redeeming. And it doesn't actually have like dollar for dollar deposits at hand. And so when there's a run on a shadow bank, things get shady and dark. Uh, but then again, Look, it's really not so different conceptually from the property developers in China and their business models, right? Which was not a Ponzi scheme in the hidden Madoff sense, but certainly was in sort of the kind of cash flow and leverage sense, right? In other words, if you were to purchase a brand new yet-to-be-built property or a home or condo or apartment from one of these developers in China now, today, and any sane person would never do such a thing, but let's just say you did, Okay. If we just go by previous standards of putting down at least 50% cash deposit up front, then what you're effectively doing is you're giving them cash flow to complete a previous project that's been like well overdue to someone who came in way ahead of you with their down payment or maybe even full payment and has been just sitting around waiting for potentially years past the promised completion date to get their property. So in that sense, it's like Ponzi scheme-ish. You know, they they don't have enough capital, operating capital, to pay what they, you know, what, what their obligations are. And they're relying on fresh capital coming in to pay that of the older obligations. And so, given that these investment trusts had also lent into China's developers in order to generate higher yield to pay out, then that's the feedback loop problem, right? Because when when property developers' funding dries up, they can't make good on their projects nor their obligations. And then as the shadow bank trusts find their high-yield source from property developers default on their coupons or, or loans or the entire principal to these shadow banks, then they too are unable to pay out to their promised yield or, or principal to their end clients. And their end clients being the upper-middle-class Chinese individuals. And when that happens to this cohort of the Chinese population, right, the home buyer, the homeowner, they get hit on their property assets. And then people who are also a trust investor in, in one of these vehicles, um, and often they're the, you know, the same overlap of homeowners, they're now also getting hit on their financial assets. And so their home value is getting hit down or their pending home has locked up their liquidity and their fixed income investment trusts aren't paying coupons or even maturing principles. Okay, so you're just getting hit on all sides and it could also it could be like the same person. And here's the thing. Any combination of these people, they are the predominant consumers of goods and services that the broader economic recovery of China, if not the world, is dependent upon to drive a consumption-led growth boom out of China that's already in the doldrums as it is. So if your thesis is one of, you know, China's consumers will fuel global growth, right? Such as like one that would pull Germany out of its flatlining um, or stocks like LVMH or, you know, AUD, Aussie dollar, upside or what, whatever other China derivative play, right? 
if you're counting on the Chinese consumer to return from current, quote, lows, well, let's see what waves of cascading trust defaults due to waves of property sector defaults does for this crisis in consumer confidence that's already underway and taking place. Okay, so that's why these two separate but interrelated liquidity blowups taking place with Country Garden and Zhongxi matter far beyond just BlackRock and Allianz bondholders. All right, so that's the setup heading into China Terminal Week. Now, are we ready to blast through China Terminal Week? So here's where, gonna, where we start for context. Hang Seng Index close at 19,000 is where we start. 18,000 is where is the level that puts it into official bear market territory, all right? And this is a chart of dollar yuan offshore USDCNH. That red line is 7.375. That's where we breach new 15-year highs on dollar yuan if broken through. And so we're going to start the week at seven and a quarter. And then here's the same chart of USDCNH. And then the white dotted lines are 9.15 a.m. local time. That would be when the PBOC sets their daily yuan fixing. And as we know, they've been setting the daily yuan fixings far stronger than the estimates on a daily basis over the last several weeks as their front lines in keeping the yuan afloat. All right. So I'll be referring back to this chart as we go through the day by day um, as to, you know, what that day's fixing uh, spread is versus the estimates. Okay, here we go. Monday, August 14th, China pre-market open. The PBOC sets the daily yuan fix at 600 pips stronger than estimates. And just recall, when they started doing these aggressively stronger yuan fixes above estimates consecutively, you know, every single day since really the end of June to current, 600 pips at that point was a major move stronger when they first hit that, le- that you know, level of delta versus estimates in, in late July, okay? Um, as... Because prior to that, we hadn't seen such such a gap stronger um, since October, November of 2022, when the relentless yuan decline had actually then reversed thereafter. So we are kicking the week off back at 600 pips stronger than estimates for PBOC's yuan fixing, meaning PBOC is serious about stemming the yuan decline, just as it had been for many weeks prior. Country Garden Holdings suspends trading on 11 of its outstanding onshore bonds that had last traded at single-digit pennies on the dollar. And as such, the would-be bond sell-off was expressed via Country Garden's stock price, which plunges another 18% on the day on massive volume as the property sector leads declines and the Hang Seng Index hits 18,500 at session lows. Okay, remember we're starting at 19,000 and 18,000 is the bear market territory. 18,500 at session lows on Monday. Sentiment and outflows from the yuan and Chinese equities are being fueled largely by Country Garden, as well as Zhangji, who is missing payments. Uh, the Hang Seng Index basically closes the day down 1.5% led by property management sector, but really everything was in the red and making the Hang Seng Index the world's worst performer in August. And that's saying something because everything is getting killed in August globally. And this is just because foreigners are net selling for the sixth consecutive day on volume. And despite PBOC's daily yuan fix uh, rate that was set 600 pips stronger versus estimates, dollar yuan is up a quarter percent to 7.29 at session highs. All right, so that's Monday. And at this point, all eyes are like, they're, I mean, of course they're on markets, but they're really on policymakers, all right? Now, that said, China MLF rates, medium-term lending facility rates, which are supposed to be released the following day for Tuesday, those are expected to be left unchanged, um, as is by the PBOC. That is according to consensus estimates. Tuesday, August 15th at China pre-market, 9.15 a.m., PBOC daily fix is now 670 pips stronger than estimates. So even more of a yuan strength fix than the prior day. Then in a matter of minutes, the yuan is about to get blasted to six weeks lows as, whoa, 
PBOC unexpected rate cut on that one-year MLF by 15 basis points to 2.5% and net $1 billion of net liquidity uh, injections. Okay? So, wow. That, that's the sharpest cut to one-year MLF policy rates. Now, any changes made to PBOC's MLF one-year and five-year rates are traditionally like a guidance or like a reference for China's one-year and five-year loan prime rates, LPR rates, right, that that follow these MLF rates about a week later. Why did the PBOC just shock cut its MLF rates, albeit, you know, a kind of a measly amount? Because this comes on the heels of a 90% plunge in new bank loans month over month to the lowest levels since 2009 there's no loan activity and china policymakers urgently need consumers and businesses and that kind of activity to kick up now pblc also made a 10 basis point cut to seven day reverse repo rate down to 1.8 percent now surprising as it may have been this 15 basis point cut on mlf again it's pretty materially meaningless move as it relates to the real economy like 15 basis points right is that, is that really gonna save everything but what was the green and red blinking ticker market impact of this yields on china drop across the curve 10-year yields on china chinese government bonds break clear th- through to now what to 2019 levels and this is happening just as U.S. 10-year yields are breaking out higher to 4.2% and and above and about to hit like financial crisis era levels from like a decade plus ago. And so now you get this nominal yield spread divergence pulling away at both sides. U.S. yields up, Chinese yields down. And as the Japanese know all too well, what happens when there's a yield spread divergence against the USD? Your currency gets crushed. So... Dollar yuan at 9 a.m. was a little north of seven and a quarter. By 9:20 a.m., it had broken through the psychological 7.3 level, and by 9:35 a.m., dollar yuan had made nearly a half percent move within a half an hour. That that is huge. That's huge for a day, let alone for that short of a time span. And through the rest of the Asia trading session and through European hours and right up until U.S. cash opened the next, you know, the, later that day, dollar yuan was up about 0.7% in total. And this, my friends, is why you don't get these massive, aggressive stimulus and rate cutting measures that would be sufficient enough to actually make material difference in both the policy mechanism as well as the symbolic messaging to rescue China's economy right now. Because even a tiny incremental step, though, you know, a shock surprise move, I'll give them that, but that just blasted dollar yuan through 7.3 with an otherwise potentially stabilizing 660 pip stronger fixing. Now, this was a very, very miscalculated move in my view, but the worst of the consequences has yet to come. Now, we then have a slew of macro data, which I seriously do not care about in the slightest. Industrial production miss, retail sales miss, fixed asset investment miss. Okay, that's as far as I'm going to cover it. And the only reason that I'm covering macro data out of China at all in the first place on this particular day is because of this. China youth unemployment. And not because of the record high 21% youth unemployment rate print that came out itself, but rather because this will be the very last one of these that we shall be privy to see. As the National Bureau of Statistics in China announced that they will also no longer be publishing the youth unemployment data statistic anymore going forward due to, quote, complexities that it has to kind of iron out uh, within the data. Now, I do have a particular differentiated view or take on, you know, on this matter that if I have time to, I'll get back to later. Um, that has nothing to do with the youth unemployment in and of itself. Um, but just very simply put, okay, so no longer publishing this particular data. And how does that provide any confidence in your remaining data that you are publishing? All right. So, you know, the data is basically noise out of China at this point. Not that it even moves markets in the first place and to kind of almost brush aside. All right. So let's keep 
moving on to Zhang Ji, whose clients continue to report that they haven't received their payments due by this shadow banking trust. However, who are we hearing this from? Or how are we hearing this? We're hearing this through social media that then gets scrubbed immediately. Okay, Who are we not hearing anything from? Chinese state media. Mouths are just zipped. But guess what? Word still spreads and clients are pissed, if not panicked. Now, here's something that I noticed that was interesting. Check out this stock chart. 1929 Chow Tai Jewelry Group. This is a Hang Seng Index constituent. And as you can see, it's basically kept beta with the Hang Seng Index to the downside for the month of August. Until this day. Tuesday, the 15th, when these rumors and social media shares of Zhangji liquidity crisis started spreading, right? You got a sell-off in this particular stock on volume, right? Down about 5 or 6% by close um, that day on three times ADV, average daily volume. Because those who are getting potentially screwed by Zhangji, who may or may not have their money... Those are the very people that overlap with kind of high-end consumption, like I was mentioning. Things like jewelry, right? Take a look at LVMH shares that day as well. This is that Chinese cohort that's supposed to be the consumer boom to save the world, as I mentioned, okay? And so these single stocks can sometimes drop little hints as to where market sentiment is from kind of a micro level. And not just sentiment, like where actual, you know, earnings impact will be. And so the Hang Seng Index closes down another day in the red by 1%. And then, after hours, headlines that come out that China is considering cutting the stamp duty on stock trades for the first time since 2008 in an effort to get the stock market to trade higher. Yes, it's as stupid as it sounds, even without knowing what a stamp duty is. But... Stamp duty is a 0.01% levy on stock trades. And the proponents of this idea point to, you know, retail investors as well as quant trading hedge funds that would boom the market higher, you know, if if this stamp duty were, were cut. Now, I do admit I haven't studied deeply into this, like, Chinese stock market stamp duty effects um, on the markets other than in well, something like in 2008 – they had removed it or they had lowered this levy and then that brought in a whole ton of additional retail investors pushing the stock market higher such that they had to reintroduce it to kind of calm that down. Fine, whatever. That's a totally separate era, totally separate sort of regime. Doesn't mean that it's going to replicate now, okay? What I can tell you is that Regarding quant funds, yeah, maybe they'd be more active, but they'd be active to momentum on, on the downside, if anything, at this moment, okay? And then as for, like, the retail or the non-quant investors, do, do the policymakers, do they really think that the reason for this full-out market liquidation happening in China is because of a, a 0.01% fee per trade? Like, that's what's keeping them from buying into the falling knife? Like again, it's as ridiculous as it sounds. Okay, but the significance of this stamp duty quote consideration is that it shows to what extent the policymakers are trying to do anything and everything but the obvious, just straight up full blown stimulus. It highlights what they're not doing rather than what they are doing or are considering doing. Stamp duty is basically the policy equivalent of realizing that you run out of shampoo while already in the shower, and so you kind of fill up your empty bottle with water and you shake it around and then that's your shampoo for the day. In other words, just completely out of ideas. And once that kind of residual shampoo is washed out, it's you really don't have anything left. All right, Wednesday, August 16th at China pre-market 9.15. We are now fixing at just under 800 pips stronger versus expectations. All right, dollar yuan, nonetheless, Still moves higher. We're, we're now well into 7.3 handle. The Hang Seng closes down 1.36% with hitting a low of 18,260 on the day. So getting very close to that bear market territory. One more day like this should do it. All right. Meanwhile, Hong Kong and China 
take the entire Asia region down from open till close. Look at the the Nikkei chart price action and Australia down 1.5%, just flatlining from market on open, right? The Kospi, Korea is even worse, down 1.75%. And yes, this obviously translated over to Europe and U.S. indices as well. Like all, all of this has been so far during this turmoil week. So in light of this horrible market and also realizing that a you know, a fucking stamp tax is not going to cut it. Chinese officials tell funds to avoid net sales on equities. Now, let me explain what this means. So in 2015, during, you know, a different episode of market turmoil in China, Chinese officials instituted a short sell ban from like temporarily. That's never, ever, ever, ever a good idea, except the Koreans did pull it off somehow without getting crushed the moment that it lifted. But this time, they're not banning short selling. In fact, they're not banning selling, period. What they're saying is that if you're going to sell stocks, by all means do so. However, you just need to buy more than you sell. That's what no net selling means. So, I mean, I guess that's more... Not clever, obviously, but more effective, I suppose, for green and red blinking tickers to push to the upside than, you know, stamp tax removal or whatever to turn, you know, would-be sellers into buyers, right? But yeah, this is now where we're at when when we're at the cusp of bear market um, on the Hang Seng. Meanwhile, those Zhang Rong investors who are getting screwed, yeah, they're they're still pissed. They still don't have their money. And so much so that they went to protest at Zhongrong headquarters in Beijing. That's how much they don't give a damn about so-called rules of not protesting and demonstrating and, and all that, right? They're doing this in their headquarters in Beijing. And it doesn't help when an executive at Zhongrong told its investors that it had no plans to make clients whole after missing payments. According to CNN, there were chants about... Why don't you pay us our money? Referring to like a video that was posted on WeChat that was subsequently de- you know, deleted. Basically, it showed a band that was dressed in like a red vest with a Zhang Rung logo, um, you know, and so a Zhang Rung employee. And he's using a bullhorn to speak to the agitated group outside of the company's office saying, quote, let me explain. We can't make any public announcement right now. The main reason is that we are still actively checking our underlying assets and we are trying our best to recover the assets for you. Now, if we disclose the underlying assets of a certain product, then it might cause a dramatic shrinking of those assets. We can't do this because this is being irresponsible, end quote. All right, so that's from CNN quoting an unidentified person, but most likely, you know, an employee of Zhang Rong or some sort of representative talking to a very pissed off mob outside of the offices. All right. So then what happened after that? Well, the police then subsequently made visits to these shadow bank investors who were getting screwed at their homes and urged them not to make public demonstrations and protests. Now, what the hell do they think this is going to do? Right? It's, Going, is it going to make people less angry? Is it going to make them forget that their life savings or net worth may have just disappeared into the ether? You know, and then when you do things like this, what what does it do? All it does is give the image, be it right or wrong, right, that there is a protected class of elites who can screw over honest people financially and that they're the ones who the state backs and protects. Now, I actually don't believe that this this to be the actual case, but I can certainly see that narrative taking hold, you know, with these horrendous optics. But either way, just the fact that they're this blind to that risk, you know, that shows how out of touch they are. And how that relates to green and red blinking tickers is these policymakers, they don't understand their own people and they have no read on sentiment, on the ground, everyday sentiment. And yet, they're supposed to be the top-down planners of the economy. So, we'll get more into this later, 
Moving on for Turmoil Week. Thursday, August 17, at China Pre-Market, 9.15 a.m., PBOC daily yuan fixes now coming in 900 pips stronger than estimates because dollar yuan doesn't stop rising despite all of these efforts, including the one unforced error in shot-cutting rates against rising U.S. yields on Tuesday. So we're now at 7.35 on dollar yuan. Now, 900 pips is just shy of the previous record-setting extreme from mid-October of 2022. Yuan and the daily fixing is now getting a lot more attention. But it is indeed losing its efficacy because they keep doing it stronger, and yet the yuan keeps falling weaker. And markets now see that these day-over-day increases, that's now become the standard normal. So if they go flat day over day, that would be kind of the equivalent of removing yuan support, all right? And so this is their own doing, obviously. But after market hours at 7 p.m., which, by the way, this is when all this is when all of these headlines about whatever market policy just drops out of nowhere, like in the middle of me working on market death for the day and therefore kind of have to recalibrate, right? But either way, 7 p.m., on this particular day, the Thursday of Turmoil Week, Bloomberg, quote, China told state banks to escalate yuan intervention this week. And boom, dollar yuan gets crushed. In fact, dollar yen's treacherous upside also gets relieved, uh, as per this memefied version of the same chart here that I put on Twitter. Now, why did this headline impact and strengthen the yuan and with such great vigor and velocity? Because after all, how many times have we heard this same headline about state banks intervening on behalf of the PBOC to sell dollars and buy yuan, especially in the PM session, to push for a higher CNY close so that the next day's fixing can be you know, off of a stronger CNY base level? But we hear this all the time. In fact, we heard it throughout this very week. So why did this one move markets? Well, two factors. One is the level itself, right? Being north of that 730 level, there's a lot of positioning to short dollar yuan as perceived to be that 2022 top that will be defended by the PBOC. And so that's kind of seen as maybe a near-term bottom or profit-taking level. And so therefore, you know, it puts a turn in momentum, but gets momentum in an overstretched position. That's the very generic answer. Here's the other answer. This came from Bloomberg. And if anyone's ever noticed that the, quote, Chinese state banks are in the FX markets, unsourced headlines, they always, always, always come from one outlet, Reuters, for years. It's, and it's extremely frequently so, right? Like almost daily, as I said. Almost as if Reuters is like the boy who cried Chinese state banks selling USD. Seriously. And it's... it's Gone to the point where if it's out of Reuters, it doesn't even have market impact, or at least not as much as it used to because of the frequency of it. In fact, look at this. Reuters headline comes in at 6.10 p.m., whereas the Bloomberg headline comes in at 7 p.m. Markets didn't move on that Reuters headline, but it absolutely did move on Bloomberg for effectively more or less the same message or story, right? So that's kind of an interesting twist. Markets are now discerning credibility weighting between different publications, right? And this is not like, you know, domestic local Chinese or something like that versus some foreign. This is Reuters and Bloomberg, all right? Um, but yeah, they might be actually, you know, at least for this particular matter, they might be weighing different credibility for different publications, okay? Or not. But just thought it was worth pointing out because the Bloomberg headline really didn't move markets, not just the yuan, not just dollar yen, but equities, NASDAQ, and, the Re and Reuters just didn't. Then we have this headline. Chinese officials meet foreign firms to ease data law fears. Walmart, PayPal, among them. Now, why is this of significance that I pulled out? Because in 2021, Xi Jinping tightened up his power over foreign companies over this new data law on tech firms. But now, apparently, officials are talking about how to essentially, like, loophole what the dear leader's rule is. 
So what's this all about? Is this desperation for you know foreign entities to not divest, i.e. invest? Or just sharper economic minds going behind Xi Jinping's back thinking that, you know, the ends justify the means, but loopholing Xi's law nonetheless. Um, and and how and where else would this be applied? This sort of kind of, you know, sidestepping um, of rules that are in place. And more importantly, just how much actual command and discipline does Xi Jinping have? Now, my view on this, I'll give you my takeaway right now for you know, one of the reasons that you're seeing policy dysfunction increasing right now in China. It's because Xi Jinping is not micromanaging the economy, like every little sector and piece of it and every little, you know, corner of it. But even if Xi Jinping is indeed like extremely laser focused and solely interested in the domestic economy as much as we think he is, we're talking about the largest state-controlled economy in history. That means delegation, okay? Because one guy cannot implement, like, new stamp rules on stock trading along with everything else. And delegation can often lead to fracturing and fragmentation amongst different opinions and factions and all that, okay? And I think that we're getting some of that, and we're going to get more of that. And that's why we have some weird policy dysfunctions and co- almost contradictions happening. Okay, but either way, that's Thursday. Hang Seng Index actually does pierce through that 18k level downwards and into 17,000 handle for a moment in the PM session. But then it actually rallies from that support level, pushed by technicals, and it actually ends the day flat or down minus 0.1 percent for its best day of the week. Not that that's a very high bar to you know to to jump. So can it be? Can it be that bear market bottom is actually a very, very strong level of buying support? And it's time for a massive face-ripping short squeeze Hang Seng rally to skyrocket to the moon for the last day of turmoil week? No, not at all. Now, before we get into this last day of China turmoil week, Friday... Just once again, take note of the magnitude of the dollar yuan move that occurred after hours Thursday on that Bloomberg headline drop of state bank intervention. Okay. Dollar yuan dropped significantly. So that means we do have a bit more wiggle room to work with for Friday's PBOC daily yuan fix, given that, you know, dollar yuan had dropped significantly. So. Friday, August 18th, at China pre-market, 9.15 a.m., to end the week of ever-escalating stronger-than-expected yuan fixes, all of which have been to little or no avail in capping dollar yuan upside, as you can clearly see in this chart. The PBOC goes a full 1,000 pips above estimates for the strongest fixing versus estimates on record. 1,000 pips. So to me... This is a very clear, you know, not just message, but action. Very loud and clear. China is indeed pulling out the relative big guns of policy with regards to this specific policy. Because they're pulling out this new record-setting four-figure pip-stronger fix. And it's applying it to the one market that had been all along, as of a point to, you know, actually been taking action on. Yuan stabilization. Furthermore, it seems that China will go down swinging to defend that approximate 7.375 level so as to not break into that new 15-year high on dollar yuan. Now, I tweeted about this as well, but again, why should you care? NDX, NASDAQ futures, NASDAQ 100 futures, and most other DM indices for that matter, that direction will continue to be highly influenced by the PBOC's ability or not to hold that line on dollar yuan. Okay, if they can or if they just did put a floor under the yuan for this current downtrend that started in you know August, then the NDX August sell-off may very well also be done. Or not, right? Because maybe NDX downside momentum is already kind of in a, a self-driven perpetual motion. But if 
this is indeed a mere one, two, you know, few day temporary stabilization, but then Yuan subsequently does get smashed through to 2007 levels and then beyond, well, then NDX also has much more plummeting left to do in continued tandem. That's why you should care, especially right now, with dollar yuan at these levels and the extent to which they are defending the yuan and the measures that they are taking. 1,000 pips stronger. So then, Friday after the close, in addition to the PBOC you know, having its kind of largest fixing or strongest fixing on record and having state banks support the yuan, it seems that the Chinese authorities and Chinese officials are also, you know, I don't know if equally, but are still very concerned about the stock market as well. Maybe not necessarily a certain level, bear market otherwise, but clearly there is a lot of attention and a lot of ideas and kind of things that are being thrown out there, stupid as they may be, in support of the stock market. And on Friday after the close, Chinese authorities and the Shanghai Stock Exchange, they pushed publicly traded tech companies to do share buybacks, and 30 firms had obliged. These are the companies listed on the tech-heavy starboard. And then this regulator also said that it will cut like handling fees in, in stock transactions. And then they're also going to talk, you know, look into extending trading hours for, for equities as well as for bonds, right? So a lot of like stock market support. But at the end of the week, this week of turmoil in China, we had a significant sell-off in the Hang Seng Index, now in bear market territory. And we have dollar yuan basically just just barely avoid getting crushed through that 7.375 level. But nonetheless, take a enormous beating, um, you know, for the first, what, four days of that week. Despite all of that support, the stronger fixings, the most strong fixing on record uh, versus estimates, all of the state-backed support, the jawboating, and all of that, right? But what really set a lot of that back was, once again, that surprise cut to the one-year MLF. And then you just get this one-directional move downward in NDX and obviously in other U.S. indices, S&P 500, E-minis, and all that, moving right in tandem with dollar yuan as it continues to get crushed. And then you have global funds that are just rushing the hell out of China after they just rushed into China following the Politburo meeting, like fund flows. You could just see like just how quickly, how quickly that turns, that rush in and then rush back out. And then once again, that just causes policymakers to direct onshore, you know, funds to support the equity markets. Okay, so... I guess it turns out that turmoil week is not uh, one week long because it's still continuing today. So we have one-year loan prime rates, which are traditionally supposed to follow whatever changes are made to MLF rates. Last week, that was the minus 15 basis point you know, surprise cut to one-year MLF. Um, one-year LPRs are supposed to follow that, right? Well, today, one-year LPR was only cut by 10 basis points, not 15. And five-year LPR, which is a reference for mortgages, was left untouched. One-year LPR coming in short of 15 basis points to match that one-year MLF cut last week. That was actually, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise to me personally at first. But the kind of wider street expectations for a 15 basis point cut to five-year LPR that, that, that didn't come and therefore disappointed, I don't get that. Like, why? Why, why would that be your assumption, right? Again, market disappointment of policy. What that shows is that still, still to this day, there are so many people out there that are hinging on rescue measures that are that have to come that are imminently coming out of Beijing. When clearly as turmoil week has shown and not just turmoil week of as this entire, you know, year has shown, it's China is doing absolutely everything, every stupid little like nibble around the edge thing possible. Meaning, it's glaringly obvious what they're clearly avoiding, which is the traditional methods of direct and like bold stimulative measures and easing measures. Okay, this is not my opinion anymore. 
this is just what this is what's transpiring. So uh, that's what I'm just very like regarding this whole LPR rate cut, the absence of like being you know characterized as like puzzling. It's not puzzling. It's extremely straightforward and it's obvious. Like it's so much so that I keep having to check to see if I'm missing something in plain sight, and, and maybe I am. Okay, and if that's the case, I'm gonna look like an idiot right now. But what's puzzling to me is that everyone's saying it's like puzzling. Not everyone. A lot of people out there are saying it's puzzling. Okay, the policy transmission mechanism. It's basically that MLF, which was last week. Okay, again, minus 15 basis point surprise from MLF. The MLF rate is basically a pure central bank PBOC policy rate. All right, one year loan prime rates and five year loan prime rates. Yeah, that's a policy rate, but that is not set solely by the PBOC. That's set by like a group of something like 18 or 20, I don't remember off the top of my head, different banks that essentially agree upon an appropriate rate that is referenced off of the MLF, okay? So that's why you're going to get sometimes like this sort of friction. So currently, the PBOC is cutting rates, making it cheaper to borrow, and they're telling banks, banks, lend more. And banks are saying, okay, PBOC, first of all, there is no loan demand. Okay, so there aren't loans to be made. And second of all, we need to be able to afford to be able to lend. In other words, you're cutting into our net interest margins if you lower our rates, and it's killing us. Okay, so therein lies, like, the discrepancy of the two. One of them is a pure policy rate. The other one has more of, like, a market leaning to it or comes from a place of actors in markets who are dealing with borrowers and who know what the the landscape is more so than the policymakers. The policymakers are just kind of shoving on what their wishes and desires are. The banks, as reflected in, in LPR rates, are coming from more of a practical business angle, if you will, taking into account that, yes, they are still under command of, you know, the the central bank at the end of the day. But here's the thing, like, mortgage rates in China are already at record lows, okay? It's not a matter of borrowing rates being too high that's, like, killing the property sector right now. It's that there's just no demand to borrow because there's no demand for property right now and, and housing. So, all in all, this is just a matter of a crisis of consumer and market confidence. That really is what is at the essence of what's killing China right now, okay? And it might be simple to identify like that. It is far from simple to fix that. It is basically, like, it's not up to policymakers to generate positive consumer and market confidence, okay? You can crush consumer and market confidence all day, top-down. But to generate it, especially after you've like immediately after you've crushed it, that's pretty much impossible to do to do right away. Okay, so just to end, what I want to do is just play like a series of quick clips from prior episodes of Market Depth. Okay, in fact, these were from episodes from the last time China cut MLF and loan prime rates back in June, and what I say then, that is still what my current framework in terms of how I look at China and their policy and market reaction is, all right? So take a look at this. I don't think that there would be any sort of like sudden bull rush back into China at that point because of a PBOC rate cut. Because one, as I pointed out earlier, so much of that is already expected by markets as it is, which is another way of saying that current market conditions that are in downfall that I've just shown you, that's what the markets are doing with an expected rate cut that has yet to come. And so, if and when it comes, that wouldn't be of any surprise. Um, And so therefore, a widely expected PBOC stimulus measure in the near term would likely not revive the China reopen sentiment that we had going into this year at anywhere near that level of one-way consensus optimism of the day. So my overall take is, China is actually doing more harm than good if they keep doing these half-measure policy responses. Because not only is the policy stimulus long-priced in and expected, um, and still markets are down, and thereby even you know even the assumed policy is predisposed to be ineffective, right? But if they keep just shying away 
from taking out the big guns and blasting off with like major stimulus across all like facets, right? If they don't go big when they previously have done so before um, and thereby have shown what they can do, then that signals to markets, to the world, to the, you know, internally, externally, that they are choosing not to use previous policy support measures, um, both monetary and fiscal, okay? And why would they or anyone choose not to exercise policy, even policy that had been used before? Because apparently, from their perspective, on balance, it would be I would it would actually do more harm than good, at least from their view and their priorities. So, if China doesn't want to go down that like easing hole again because they correctly or otherwise feel that more debt and leverage isn't a fix, but rather you know just like can kick down the road. Or if it's that they simply can't blast off a big enough easing bazooka fix for whatever reason. And if markets perceive that there is no policy fix coming by choice or not, and that realization, if that ever hits the broader base sentiment, that's when you will see global markets ex-China finally stop ignoring China's deterioration and rapidly price it in. Okay, so... Tiny half measures would actually do more harm than good because all it would do is just confirm to the world that indeed China's economy is in bad shape and is in need of stimulus, but it is not actually receiving that adequate stimulus, right? Um, and it would be better if they did nothing than rather if they did something that was just met with a market that rejects whatever that something is. Now, as to broader markets... Are we now at that point in which DM equity markets that had been ignoring China's economic de deterioration now starting to price in um, now that the PBOC and the central government have taken action that isn't being received as adequate? Has that process now begun? Yeah, that process has now begun. Well, not now begun. It's already underway. Hence, turmoil week. But long before that as well. So now that... Having said that, here's now my latest kind of update of this very framework view of how I see China stimulus measures and market response. So I say that like half measures of stimulus and all that, they do more harm than good because they don't actually do anything materially meaningful in terms of stimulus. And all that it does is just shows that authorities in China are confirming economic weakness. So just like the downside only, right? And indeed, that seems to be playing out and materializing. But now, I think that we might be at this point in which China might have gone too far for too long in holding off on like the big bazooka stimulus, that that would now be the equivalent of confirming dire economic conditions that require, you know, like a immediate ICU care stimulus type of thing, right? Huge stimulus just to, just to mitigate. Um, but it would not be a good thing if they actually did it because it would mean that things are that dire that they needed to flip and do it, right? So, take, for example, take a look at, like, COVID zero policy and how that was implemented and then how long it was implemented for despite all of this, like, evidence and backlash that the policy was clearly, clearly just a very, very ineffective, stupid policy that was doing far more, far more harm than good. It was not even doing any good. It was not even doing what it set out to do, which was to just, what, kill all COVID. You still got cases, right? So it was not even doing that, right? But it kept on lasting and lasting. Why? The stubbornness and all that kind of thing from the higher-ups or the higher-up. And then the sudden capitulation, throwaway of COVID-0, like literally overnight as if it never happened, right? Xi Jinping can, and very likely may, do the same sort of behavior here. It might be underway right now in terms of this economic policy hold off, okay? Just replace COVID-0, let's call it stimulus zero policy, okay? Currently, Xi Jinping is very staunch, staunchly attached to his stimulus zero policy, despite the clear need to end stimulus zero. And so, if China one day, out of the blue, does decide to unleash massive post-financial crisis-style China fiscal monetary stimulus bazookas, right? 
then it might have an immediate and short-lived short-squeeze upside risk-on market response. But broadly, it's going to be read as, oh my god, how horrendous is this opaque Chinese economy that she and team, who were very steadfast on stimulus zero policy, through all of this, through like clear economic deterioration for just like months and months and months, um, you know, on every single front and like in so many different sort of measures and data points, they stuck with stimulus zero. But now something has changed and now they've completely 180 capitulated. How bad is the economy now then? If they weren't taking action then, how bad is it now? And so whatever that stimulus measure may be, it will likely be taken as a negative rather than the beginning of a global growth revival cycle. That's how I see it, okay? I'm just using that same framework that I just showed you those clips of and just kind of bringing it up to speed to the current situation, all right? You can't simply just, you know, capitalism with Chinese characteristics your way out of structural headwinds like having to manage a currency peg, you know, an unstoppable demographic reality, uh, economic growth model that's just too far addicted to property to ever be replaced by, like, EVs or whatever, and the mountains and mountains of, like, black box debt, all right? Um, but that doesn't mean that that's the way that Xi Jinping sees it. And ultimately, he calls the shots, not me. I'm just here to try and trade my way around the shots that he takes, the shots that he misses. And thank God for that. I do not want to, I do not want to switch places. Now, looking ahead into the immediate, what am I looking for? I'm looking at the BRICS conference. And specifically, by which I mean, I'm looking at Xi Jinping and his behavior as he heads to South Africa to attend the BRICS conference this week in Johannesburg. Now, whatever comes or doesn't come from of this BRICS summit itself, it does, doesn't matter. I don't care. It's not what I'm focused on. What I'm focused on, again, it's not BRICS, but it's for any bit of reading on where Xi Jinping's mind is right now and where it's not, okay? How much of Xi Jinping's, you know, time and energy and, and thought and sort of efforts and all of that, of which he has only a limited amount of in a day, how much of that is being devoted to the domestic economy in those sort of, you know, measures? Or is it being diverted somewhere else? And the domestic economy things are kind of being delegated. How does Xi Jinping look at the economy, at the domestic Chinese economy from his lens, right? Obviously, he thinks that he's sufficiently aware of what's going on. But is he perhaps being painted even a rosier picture than you know, what the reality is by those who are reluctant to deliver him bad news, okay? Or is he knowingly or not neglecting or putting aside the domestic economy at a lower priority focus relative to other matters, such as his international economic coalition building as a higher priority focus, right? Whatever it is, the reason that I'm intertwining you know, the day-to-day -day economic meltdown in China and the muted response from Chinese policy officials in light of this economic meltdown, the reason I'm entwining that with the BRICS conference, regardless of what does or doesn't come from the BRICS conference, is Xi Jinping's behavior. He's been silent and almost invisible to the public regarding matters of managing the struggling domestic economy. But yet he's making a very rare in-person appearance and presence to BRICS in South Africa. That alone says a lot, okay? And it might explain a lot regarding this blindfolded dart throwing of economic policy protocol that's going on in China and the day trading of disposable policy measures one headline after another, right? Because Daddy Xi isn't home, and so the kids are left, you know, unattended. And therefore, you get, like, fractured and sometimes just contradictory piecemeal drips of policy proposals and actions from every which way, okay? And if that's the case, that's even worse than if, like, she actually having full command and control that he thinks he does. Because if that's, if that's the case, at least it will, would be far less volatile if policy is at least consolidated under one guy rather than, you know, dozens of, of worker bees trying to climb up the political ladder. Either way, 
BRICS summit is important to me because I want to see Xi Jinping leaving his country now of all times when he never, ever left for like like 700 days or something like that um, throughout COVID because I want to see what's more important than the domestic economy if there is something more important than the domestic economy and where his priorities and where his mind is, right? Like I think about Joe Biden coming to Japan for G Summit in Hiroshima, what, a few months ago, but he was almost not going to come and he had to leave early because Kevin McCarthy was waiting in Washington to work out a, you know, debt ceiling deal with the clock ticking, right? But Joe Biden came to G7 and then he went back home to tend to domestic economic needs, dire economic needs. Xi Jinping, who's been Zoom calling in everywhere, he can do the same thing that his buddy Vladimir Putin is. Putin is not allowed to, he's not allowed to be there. Um, Xi Jinping can do the same, but he is choosing to leave his own domestic economy in the current state that it's in. That's interesting to me, so that's why I'm watching BRICS, okay? But whether or not he's physically in China or physically absent from China, what's clearly and purposefully absent in China right now is meaningful economic stimulus. And should that day ever come where we ever get that economic bazooka, I think that'll be too much late. All right, so that is it for me. If you are not subscribed to the Market Death Podcast on BlockWorks Macro, I strongly suggest that you do so. If you are, and even if you're not, um, and you found any sort of value in this work today that I've done, please hit the like button. I would certainly appreciate it. Okay? And either way, thank you, as always, very much for your time today. On behalf of BlockWorks Macro, my name is Wes Nakamura. We will see you very soon. Thank you. Bye.